Hello, and welcome to Hardy Party of Five and a Half. Welcome, welcome. Rebecca, I was just thinking. What were you thinking? Back when I was a teenager, long, long time ago. <laughs> you remember? Barely. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to forget it all. Mm. But I remember going over to my friend Marty McFly's house <laughs> and hanging out with him. His okay. dad, George, he was kind of odd, but nice guy. Hey, yeah. His mom, Lorraine. Mm-hmm. And it was just, I just remember having so much fun over there. Really? Yeah. Do you, you remember that? No, I no. didn't do that at all. <laughs> what kind of car did they have parked in their driveway? Well, they had, I think it was a DeLorean. <laughs> I'm not sure. You remember those DeLoreans? Babe, I think you're stuck in a movie. Oh, that's not, those aren't my real memories. <laughs> those are not your real memories. Oh, so what is that from? It's from Back to the Future. Back to the Future. Oh, and today yeah. we have a guy from Back to the Future. We do, Jeffrey Wiseman. Oh my goodness. And he played, he, y'all. The best storytelling ever, ever. He was so good. And his voice should be a scented candle. It, it should be a scented candle. It really candle. should, I because just, it was so relaxing. It was so relaxing. Yeah. Yeah, he was really good. Let well, him... I'm a little upset that those weren't my real memories. No. Because those movies are so good that it feels like I was in the movies with them. Yeah, you were not. I was not. <laughs> I'm not near that exciting either. <laughs> no, no, you're not. So I have a couple of trivia questions for oh, you gosh. about Back okay. to the Future. You already answered one of them, actually. I did. What kind of car? DeLorean. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now this is a hard one. Are you ready? Okay. What are the four years to which they time travel? Oh gosh, 1955. Okay. 2015. Yes. And 1985. Yes, and there's that was oh correct. 1885. What? Yeah. No. Yeah. You're yes. Crazy. Ooh, take that. I don't know how you know this. Stuff. Smell what the rocks got cooking. Here's a harder one. Okay. True or false? 50 50 shot. Okay. There is a French version of Back to the Future. There's a French version of Back to the Future. I had to 50 50 shot. 50, 50 Look shot. me in the eyes. Is it true? It's true. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to say, is it true? Is it false to get your reaction? But you gave it up too soon. There's a French version. Yeah, who knew? Oh, okay. I don't know. There you it's go. a good thing our guest today can say hello in how 15, many? 15 different languages. 15 different and languages. You'll find out why when you listen. That's right. Yep. Um, what was the name of the almanac from Back to the Future? Well, it was Two. the was it the Guinness Sports Almanac? You're so close. Guinness. It's not Guinness. No. It starts with a G. It's a color. Uh green? Gray? Yeah. Gray sports almanac? Gray sports almanac. Okay. That's pretty interesting. I kind of right? stumbled into that one. Okay. In the whole trilogy, how many boards does Marty ride? How many boards does he ride? Oh, mm-hmm. gosh. I don't know, babe. He Ooh, does... He said he has to learn. He had to learn to skateboard for this movie, Michael J. Fox. For the hoverboards and mm-hmm. such? Mm-hmm. Well, he has a regular skateboard, right? So that's one. Okay. He has the hoverboard when he goes to the future. Okay. Because it's back to the future. Yeah. Okay. And then he also, in the third one, alongside the train, he's on a board. So I'm going to say three times. That is right. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I do need to be on a game show. I 
I keep saying I'm going to sign you up for every game show. Can I do that? Would you Would you go? I would. Sure. Why not? You want a game show? You yeah, do let's it. do it. You only live once. Okay, I'm going to. You only lose once. I'm going to do that. But before that, before we get there, let's go straight to this interview with Jeffrey Wiseman. Y'all are going to love him. Like Scott said, his voice should be a scented candle. And he shares his screen with us and he's showing us some behind the scenes, never before seen pictures and video. Yeah, some video of him getting his makeup done. It's so it's so cool. wild. Yeah. So you might want to pop over to YouTube if you're if you're on audio right now. But either way, it's super cool. It's still awesome. It's yeah. super cool. Please enjoy this interview with Jeffrey Wiseman. Um all right. So Jeffrey Wiseman, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. And we're going to jump right in with some of these questions that we have for you. You're a fascinating character. We've, we've already learned a lot about you and I can't wait to share that with people. Okay, okay, Jeffrey, we are just, we're fascinated with people that are passionate about what they do. And it's obvious that you're passionate. Mm-hmm. So when did you know that you were going to be a performer for the rest of your life? Um, I, I think I always wanted to be a performer. I, I was a, a ham at the dinner table when I was a, a baby. And uh, growing up, uh, I, I always wanted, you know, to work like o- Opie on the Andy Griffith show or mm-hmm. uh, little Ricky on I Love Lucy. You know, the, the, uh, the kids that I saw on TV, I was like, I'd love to do that. And I had uh, some brushes with actors growing up in that my my parents ran some private clubs and famous actors like Omar Sharif and Don Adams and Lauren Green uh, played at their clubs or my dad was partners with Lauren Green in the club. And uh, I had a babysitter, I remember, go to the club uh, and we met Omar Sharif and then I watched her kind of flip out and then we went and saw him on the big screen right after that and she flipped out again and I thought wow that's a nice way to to impress someone and I really liked her a lot so I wanted to impress her. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, growing up I was actually forbidden by my parents. Uh, They wouldn't let me pursue it professionally. They allowed me to do it in school or community theater from time to time as long as I kept my grades up, uh, but they wouldn't let me let me do it. And I knew other kids through school. Uh, I was friends uh, with a, an, Anissa Jones, who played Buffy on Family Affair, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, oh, what's her name? Uh, girl who was on uh, My World and Welcome to It. Anyway, uh, and I, you know, I envied them. I, I, you know was frustrated. I I couldn't do it professionally. I thought I could. And uh, finally, when I got out of high school, uh, my parents couldn't tell me what to do anymore. I was finally 18. And so I started pursuing uh, acting professionally at that time. Hmm. Okay, so you're in one of my favorite movies ever. It's Pale Rider with Clint Eastwood. And you played Teddy Conway in that. And there's a little known fact that it's the highest grossing Western of the 80s. And it (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So cut me off how, a piece of that. Do what? I said cut me off a piece of that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. So how did that role come about? Oh, that's a good story, actually. I love this story. Um I had a very hot agent, 
uh, I had, uh, I was going to the American Conservatory Theater to study acting in San Francisco and was doing my intermediate studies at San Francisco State. And there was a, a notice on the theater department wall looking for a non-actor 18 year old. I had a friend who I thought was right for this open call for a lead in a feature film in Hollywood. And at the last minute, he wouldn't go, my friend wouldn't go unless I went with him. And I ended up being liked by the director and uh, given a screen test. And it, 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 at the time it was called The Genius, then it later evolved into a film called War Games. And a friend of the original director, Martin Bress, uh, Paula Cedar had formed her own new boutique agency out of, uh, she came out of the William Morris Agency in New York. and. Uh, she pursued me because the director had told me that I was his favorite for the lead in that film. And whether I got the part or not, I, was, I had to move back to Los Angeles. And I didn't get the lead, as we know, Matthew Broderick got it. But I started working because his agent was getting me into all sorts of wonderful offices, casting offices. Mm -hmm. And I eventually got my first co-star role in the George Miller episode segment of Twilight Zone movie. And then another film uh, shortly thereafter with, that Louis Maul helmed called Crackers in a scene with Sean Penn. And then uh, about a year or so later, uh, in a lot of other tiny parts here and there, I've, I landed, but uh, my agent called the Warner Brothers casting department and said, do you have anything that hasn't come out in breakdowns that I might have a client that's right for? And they said, well, yeah, there's this one bit in a Clint Eastwood film, but we think we have it covered. And she said, well, describe it to me. And she thought that their description, that I fit the role. Mm -hmm. And what had happened was that Sean Penn's brother, Chris, who was a very talented actor, God rest him, uh, he had met Clint at a party in Malibu or somewhere and, and said, I want to work with you. <laughs> Chris was, you know, usually right in your face. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Clint, sent him the pale writer script and offered him the role of Eddie Conway. Wow. And Chris threw it back and Clinton said, I don't want to play a good guy. I want to play a bad guy. <laughs> and casting had been well underway. Uh, I think they originally wanted Rip Torn, in fact, for Spider Conway. Uh, so, so then Clint offered Chris the part of LaHood's son, the uh, bad boy who uh, attempts the rape on Sidney Penny's character and you know he, he tries to uh, you know pick on the bad guy uh, the good guys rather mm -hmm. and so because Chris was moved out of Eddie Chuck LaFont who had been cast as Teddy moved into Eddie and thus Teddy became open yeah <laughs> and I was sent in literally uh, at the end of a week um, and put on tape by Fritz Manns, the producer of that film, and sent to Clint, who was already on location scouting and doing movie pre-shoot prep in Sun Valley, Ketchum, Idaho. And I believe I got on an airplane like Monday to go to work, you know, and uh, I remember when they, uh, we had blocked out my first scene to do, you know, going to town, ain't that kind of dumb? Uh, which Brother Chuck, uh, Eddie had just said down the road. So when I repeated it, it got a really great laugh. There's nothing better yeah. than being in a theater full of people and 
seeing the audience react to your delivery of a line mm -hmm. was a bit of heaven. Uh, so I hadn't met Clint yet. So after we set the blocking for my shot and the, and the crew started setting up for it, uh, Clint went to the pace, the trail, to set up the next shoot, the next shot for uh, Carrie Snodgrass's scene with Michael Moriarty, uh, where she holds the buckboard, doesn't want him to go to town. And it was just Clint and me, and you know he's in his duster and his hat, so he's you know the living legend icon, intimidating yeah. cowboy with no name. Yeah. And uh, and he turns to me and he says, "Yeah." I said, "Oh, Mr. Eastwood, I'm Jeffrey Weissman. I just want to introduce myself. We're about to. I'm in the next shot." And he goes, "I know who you are. Who do you think cast you?" And I was like, "Oh, yes, of course. All right." All right. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, you know, I I get starstruck and and you know i know that there there's the celebs are human like you and i doing the same bodily functions and so on and so forth but every once in a while you know i get star starstruck and one yeah. of the things i love about doing the fan cons is that i've met some of my uh idols you know my uh i was at the london film and comic con a number of years ago and found myself in the green room green room alone with sir derek jacoby and I, I, the first thing I said was, do I address you as my Lord? <laughs> because he's been knighted. And yeah. he said, oh, dear God, I hope not. You know? <laughs> anyway, I have these, these lovely moments where at uh, another show over there, um, James Tolkien, who played Principal Strickland in the Back to the Future trilogy, and I were on a break having a cup of coffee and and in comes the Star Trek star of that show, which was Leonard Nimoy. And because oh, yeah. James and Leonard had done a show directed by Otto Preminger, uh, I think it was off-Broadway or on-Broadway, uh, he came straight to our table and sat down and they reminisced. And I was you know, in the middle of this incredible talent at this table <laughs> listening uh, attentively as they did their Otto Preminger impressions. It was, wow. it was heaven for me. Yeah, really that, is, that sounds like heaven. Have and you? I, and I was able to apologize to Leonard Nimoy for kicking sand on him when I was eleven years old. Oh. On the beach. I I didn't. I wasn't watching where I was going. I kicked sand on this guy accidentally, and oh. he sat up and lowered his sunglasses. <laughs> and I, and all I could do was run home to tell my parents I'd kick sand on Spock. <laughs> <laughs> and lived to tell it. And lived, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah. Tell me that somewhere you're writing down these wonderful stories. I'm up to about 65,000 words. Okay, oh, good. Cool. Yeah. good. That's good to hear. Awesome. I, I love that because you've got some good things going on there. So as intimidating as Clint seems, I've heard he's like a very like low key director. Like he does, he never gets loud or anything like that. Yeah, that's right. He, yeah. I believe I heard that he learned from Don Siegel who directed him in the Dirty Harry films, who learned from John Ford, who directed a lot of Westerns, to shoot the rehearsals. Mm. And sometimes we, we wouldn't even get to a take. He mm. would like a rehearsal and, and move on. And, and he often wouldn't say action. He would say, whenever you're ready. Mm. Yeah. Which is really great for, for a, an actor to not have the action. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or whatever, uh, is a is a lovely gift mm -hmm. and clint having 
been in front of the camera for so many years, he probably realizes that as well. You get more of a natural delivery, though I did get into his face. Uh, you know, the, the for those of you out there who haven't seen Pale Rider, just do this for a bit. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> when Spider gets called out by the bad guys, he goes to town with his huge rock of gold and his whiskey and is getting drunk and calling out the hood because he's uh, stupid. Uh, and the <laughs> hood and Stockburn and, and his deputies all come out and make him dance. And that took us three days to shoot that scene. Uh, and the first day we shot, we were in a blizzard. And, or no, I'm sorry, the first day we were in sunlight with snow on the ground. Then the second day, the blizzard came in. Uh, and then the third day, there was sunlight again. So if you look very closely, you'll see uh, wonderful Doug McGrath playing Spider. He's in sunlight. And then when shooting starts, brother and I come out of the mercantile and daddy, you know, and we're in blizzard. And then when, oh. after he's shot and we finally get to daddy's body, all the snow had melted. So yeah. they had to bring in the oil-based fake snow. <laughs> and when you see uh, Blankenship, uh, Richard Hamilton's character, come and retrieve the boys in the dead body, as he's walking to us, the snow picks up in the wind and flies like in chunks. <laughs> snow doesn't act like that. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's but the a, uh, editor did a fabulous job of just quick edits so you don't register. Oh, they're in a blizzard. Yeah, I, didn't, I didn't register that at all. Yeah. yeah. So, so when uh, we blocked how Chuck was going to be at Daddy's dead body and where I was going to be at Daddy's dead body, we had some lines to, to, to deliver, et cetera, some action. Um, when Clint called action on that, uh, Chuck went to the wrong place. He went to where I was supposed to go. And I slipped on the oil-based snow and almost kicked poor Doug in the head. I remember seeing his hair go. <laughs> it was like, oh no. And, but I, you know, it's a take or it's a, he's shooting the rehearsal, I knew it. And, uh, you know, even though I knew I had tears coming, uh, they weren't dropping out of my eyes because with the wind chill, it was about 10 below. So I figured they were pretty much freezing in my eyes. And as soon as the rehearsal was over, I heard Clint call cut let's move on. And I was like, no. And I got into Clint's face. I said, Clint, Chuck got hit. he hit my mark. I went to his place. I almost kicked Doug in the head. And, and Clint was real silent for a moment. And he said, no, look good. We're just going to cut from your face. <laughs> Which meant I had the close-up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to argue anymore with that. So we're like, I'm right. fine with this now. That's yeah. right. That's, That's so awesome. cool. I love that he would say, you know, instead of saying action, that he would say, you know, whenever you're ready, it almost like takes the control out of his hands, which is a big deal mm -hmm. as a director and puts it into your hands and trust into you as an actor, like when you're ready, you'll go. And so there's a little bit of like pressure release, I would think, as an actor. It, it is. It's, you get a much more natural performance. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of uh, actors, they hear action, they know the camera's on, all the attention's on them, they, the shoulders will probably go up or, you know, they right. become self-conscious. Yeah. What is really lovely is uh, the, the pros that I've worked with have developed uh, sort of a, a sixth sense or an outside eye that is mm -hmm. directing them as well. Michael J. Fox is the only actor who wasn't directing a film that I've ever heard call cut. 
Oh, really? Oh, really? Yeah, he had, I forget exactly what, what he was doing. He was, uh, it was a solo on him, I believe. He was doing his line and he said, cut, cut. I didn't even believe that myself. <laughs> and Zemeckis wasn't going to, uh, you know, reprimand him. He just said, all right, let's just do it again. Yeah. Um, but it's it's really wonderful to, to see the talent that have honed their craft to where they know they are the director uh, as well, or can direct themselves. Mm -hmm. There are other talents out there that are names that will get uh, in a role that's a lead or it's financed because their name, and they'll take a, a first time director or, or not a well-established director or strong director and kind of take over the shoot. No, that's wrong. I want that to, you know, throw their weight around. And often they don't have the support or teamwork thing going on and they'll, they'll sink the films because yeah. they haven't honed that really kind of sixth sense instead of they're just bullying the director. Yeah. I've only seen that rarely, but it does happen. Yeah. And people would be reluctant to hire them, I would think too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to innately know if it's good or bad just yeah. when you're in the middle of it yeah <laughs> so we're going to get into back to the future but before we get into that i was fascinated to learn that you you developed and you performed as characters at uh universal studios <laughs> you did stan laurel charlie chaplin uh and groucho marx so tell us what it was like to develop these characters and tell us how it's different to like act in a theme park and instead of stage or screen? Oh, it, uh, it was a blessing for me. I was in between film and TV roles and doing whatever I could to, to pay the bills. Yeah. I was a valet parking attendant. I was a, a chef, a cook, a waiter, busboy, uh, catering, uh, PBX opera. I've, I've done lots of different uh, work construction and um a friend of mine who had played excuse me stanley laurel uh called me up one day and asked have you ever thought of playing stan laurel i was like no but what do you got he said uh well with my oliver hardy partner lost his stanley partner up there at universal studio on the tour i said get me in there and uh i went up to meet the the hiring boss with the Oliver Hardy as it turned out the Oliver Hardy uh, knew my work he had stage managed uh, a production of Romeo and Juliet in Hollywood that I played Mercutio in hmm. and he knew my talent I at the time was trying to remember from my childhood how Stanley was from uh, the Laurel and Hardy films that just the few that I saw as a kid and I was doing things wrong I I don't know I, I had too large of a derby hat and I was just being too, too in the wrong direction. But nonetheless, uh, Beavis, the Oliver Hardy actor, turned to the, the main boss, David Weiss, whose birthday happens to be today. I'm still in touch with him. This was in 1987. And he said, this guy's got talent. I'll train him. Wow. So sure enough, I was trained. Beavis had, uh, has this uh, acute sense of early... Hollywood comics and comedy and slapstick and silent film stars and, and a great love. And he got me into shape pretty quickly. Within two weeks, I was doing a passable Stanley. I remember like the first week I'm there standing as Stanley trying to gurn 
you know, a stand. <laughs> and uh, an African-American woman, an elderly one, came shuffling up to us saying, I always wanted to meet you too before I died. And I was like, what have I got myself into? This is very odd. Yeah. Uh, because I'm a performer, uh, entering the world of lookalikes was a little awkward. Mm. We're pretending to be someone else that we're not, but we're making money doing it. So that's a nice thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, I learned to roll with it, but I did not agree with just standing there for photo ops, just did not appeal to me. Right. Um, so I started developing different things like uh, comedy bits. Now, luckily Stanley Laurel has a ton of them from you know the, the finger wiggle mm -hmm. to measy measy, earsy nosy, mm -hmm. uh, to mm -hmm. scratching the head that he got from Dan Lino from English Music Hall and that grin. Uh, and you know his mannerisms and physicalizations and then a year after playing Stan I started putting Charlie Chaplin together a year after that putting Groucho Marx together and uh, I felt a little bit more elevated than the lookalikes that were just standing around I would try to arrange to do gags whenever possible and and Beavis Faversham my Oliver Hardy partner was a great comic comedian and uh, writer so we would be asked by the publicity department or the marketing department or various other departments of Universal to add spice to their events or what they had coming up. And we would often be brought in special. I remember, uh, even though I had worked with Dom DeLuise on Johnny Dangerously, Michael Keaton film in 83, I think that was, uh, in 88 or 89, he got his own new candid camera show and he knew that I was there as Stanley Laurel and he asked for us specifically to come and warm up his his audience oh, yeah. before that show uh, so a lot of doors would open up I, I the blessing of falling into playing Stanley I uh, was embraced by the owner of the rights to Laurel and Hardy which is the late Larry Harmon who also owned the rights to Bozo the Clown huh. um, who had fought with the uh, the estates of Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, uh, but because he had an agreement to protect the characters for an NBC cartoon he was doing, he kind of won one court case and thus owned the rights. Um, but I became embraced and friends with Lois Laurel, Stanley's daughter, and her husband Tony Haas. Both have passed away, but they were cherished by the Sons of the Desert, this international fan club. And they would have Beavis and I come and perform at their conventions and events and uh, entertain their family. And so the, uh, these amazing doors would open through them uh, and performing uh, Stan Laurel, I met uh, silent film stars that were still alive, such as Anita Garvin, who played Stanley's wife in about six films. And she was a big comedian in silent film and talkies herself having uh, been paired with uh, Thelma Todd and then Zezu Pitts uh, as the female versions of Laurel and Hardy that Hal Roach wanted to do. I'd, I'd, I'd meet legends and, and uh, you know, pinch myself. Like, what am I doing here? I'm actually on the obituary of Hal Roach huh. um, as Stanley with, you know, a picture with Beavis and I with Hal. Yeah. Um, so uh, amazing things have come through the, the lookalike stuff. And I also learned 
how to greet in 15 different languages. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that because it seems like almost that would be more tiring to do all of that because you are interacting as opposed like to you're on the whole yeah, time. A, yeah, you got to yeah. be on the whole time as opposed to yeah. like when you're taking when you're filming, then you've got cut and then you've got, you know. Yeah, well, there, there are those actors who like to be in the character or in character, even when the film's not rolling. And I, oh, okay. I respect that that might be their technique. It might be because the character is so to them or, or one reason or another. Uh, but being in character because you have to because the audience is around you. I've done immersive theater like that for some time since the early 70s i started performing in uh, renaissance fairs mm, and, okay. uh, creating a character staying in character the, the entire day having a story unfold and do stage bits and then street bits and so on and so yeah. forth and uh, i've continued that i did a hit show just a few years ago where i played a, a, vaude, a vaudevillian in an old 1920s speakeasy where i got to sing and dance the audience got to go behind the scenes and through a two-way mirror, watch my comedy partner and I at each other's necks fighting. Hmm. Um, the script was 1,500 pages oh because it's a, a three-hour show with about 30 different performers. And wow. uh, the audience gets to follow performers around. And, and it was really fun, immersive environmental theater, uh, really fun stuff, stuff that I imagined doing when I was in my teens. Yeah. I was like, what if what if we could like do a show but come to someone's home? Yeah. And do it there. And and that, you know, started becoming a thing back in the early 80s with murder mysteries and such. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That became very big then. We participated in a couple of yeah, those. Yeah, we did a couple I of those. I think you were murdered. Yes, I was murdered. <laughs> I was murdered and thrown out on the lawn. Yes, I you were. That. Yeah. I had one where I was an FBI agent, got <laughs> murdered and fell into the pool and I was floating in the pool for like 20 minutes before getting pushed out, you know, sneaking a breath. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sneaking a breath. Well, I remember on mine, there was a staircase. We were in a bed and breakfast. So I had to do the falling down the stairs death. So I went oh, about boy. the stairs and then I did the dramatic all the way down yeah, the stairs. Then I so. pushed him. No, I'm just Just Did you, did you wear elbow knee pads no i did I, I did it very slowly it was very dramatic <laughs> oh it was really oh, over yeah. the top oh yeah like intentionally over the top <laughs> so i made it down without getting hurt and then they all picked me up and threw me in the bushes though yeah so then I don't know what that was doing. his version of the pool for you where he <laughs> yeah. had to lay in the bushes for quite yeah. some time <laughs> hopefully no one got sick near the bushes no oh hope no. not yeah no. that would be <laughs> i've been to those parties too it's like yeah <laughs> oh gosh okay so back to the future this is kind of a it's a really interesting story of how you ended up with the role because crispin glover was the original george mcfly in the first one so just tell us how this story evolved and it's not without its controversy too so do you think <laughs> just a little i uh in 83 did a film at the American Film Institute with Dan O'Herlihy and Crispin Glover. And I thought both were wonderful actors. I thought uh, it was like Dan O'Herlihy who was nominated for an Academy Award for Robinson Crusoe in 68 or nine or something. And then uh, I thought Crispin was a fascinating actor. Uh, his character was trapping Dan O'Herlihy's uh, priest character and a molestation story. It was it was pretty heavy drama, and uh, I 
I got Crispin's number to stay in touch. And the next, I guess, a year and a half or so later, summer of 85, Hail Rider was coming out. And I wanted to see what the competition was going to be that, that summer. And of course, you know, Christopher Lloyd, who I was a huge fan of, Michael J. Fox, are in this Back to the Future thing. And I went to see that. And then Crispin comes on and knocks it out of the park. I mean, he was really fantastic as George. And I was like, I know that guy. He's, he was great. And I called him up and left him a message, you know, thought it, congratulating him. And then, you know, three or four years later, the same agent that called me for the Stan Laurel gig called me up and said, uh, do you know who Crispin Glover is? I go, yeah. Do you think you're the same height and weight? I said, no. <laughs> he's, he's taller and heavier than I am. He goes, oh, okay. I said, well, what's going on? He says, well, they're looking for a photo double for him. And I said, well, get me in there. I need the work. My, my ex-wife was having our, our second child and I needed to get my medical coverage. So I went and met with the assistant directors and told them, you know, I know what it's like to be on a set. You know, I give them my resume and, and uh, they spoke with Zemeckis who then sent me to casting. And uh, I auditioned reading the scene where uh, George and Marty's accompanying George while he's hanging the uh, laundry in the backyard. And I guess that went well. And I started going to uh, uh, facial prosthetic makeup fittings and body cast fittings. Uh, and I was like, well, what's, what's the fittings for the makeup all about? And, and I had to do a screen test in this young George makeup. So I figured they needed George multiple places at the same time. In the tra time traveling story, yeah. Yeah, and you know, Kevin Holloway, who was Michael J. Fox's double, looks exactly, well, not exactly, but very close to Michael. When Kevin's up on the catwalk while Michael's on, gu on guitar on stage or vice versa, you know, you, you can see them both. And Kevin, in fact, I have some photos with Kevin that people swear it's Michael J. Fox. And I say, no, that's not, you know. Hmm. And Mike had a, uh, a stand-in, lovely guy named Bobby, Robert Bennett, and then uh, stunt double, Charlie, Charles uh, uh, Coughlin. Anyway, uh, at my, uh, my test for the young George makeup, I hear Zemeckis to Dean Cundy, our cinematographer, what do you think, Dean? And Dean says, well, I think we have Crispin without the trouble. At which point I go, what do you mean without Crispin? And uh, Ken Chase, actually my makeup designer is the one who tells me Crispin's out, that I'm gonna be George. And I was like, how is that possible? I get on the phone to call Crispin and he doesn't answer. And I go, what's going on? You know, I figure he had uh, a film commitment that he couldn't get out. I just couldn't fathom how an actor who did so well and owned that character so beautifully in that first film would not come in to reprise the character so you know I figure I'll, I'll I guess I'm going to do it justice I tell my agents you know it looks like and they were like no let's wait for them to call and of course they call at the, the 11th hour on a Friday before they need me on set on Monday and lowball the, the negotiations and everything but nonetheless I'm in as George and and it was controversial because you know Mike at first was like Oh, he's not going to like this. <laughs> like, yeah, well, 
Um, you want to see pictures of that makeup? Yeah, that'd be great. All right. This shot in particular is one that I asked to keep because it was just a, a continuity shot for makeup. Face on, I didn't look so much like Crispin, but the profile. Oh, wow. Oh, is that you? Yeah. Oh, wow. gosh, that does look like Crispin. Yeah. So, and it was based wow. on his life mask. They, wow. you know, they knew they were getting into illegal uh, trouble here. I, in, I, no one told me that they didn't pay him for the rights to use his life mask. I, oh. I had uh, performed his Stan Laurel, Charlie Chaplin, and Groucho Marx. All of those Universal paid the rights to use those characters. Hmm. Now, Universal claimed they owned the character, but they didn't own Crispin's image. Right, yeah. Um, so them using this, but uh, you know, when Crispin decided it was time to sue after part three came out, uh, apparently the his life mask broke and was nowhere to be found. <laughs> anyway, there's there's so much <laughs> shifty stuff. It was it was wow, really yeah. hard for me being caught in the middle of wanting to I loved Back to the Future and I love being sort of the glue holding together this part of it that uh, a lot of it, the audience didn't know that he wasn't there. Uh, all the, you know, fighting Biff in the, in the parking lot and kissing Lorraine on the Enchantment Under the Sea dance floor uh, was all me mixed with a couple of quick shots, close-ups of, of Crispin from the first film. Mm -hmm. And when Crispin called me and said, you know, it's not fair what they did to me. And I said, well, tell me what they did to you. And, uh, he said, well, first the producer made me cry in front of the extras. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and then they tried to cut my hair when I, I asked them not to. You know, he had a lot of sob stories, but then he got to the meat of it. They used a couple of uh, quick shots of him and we're only gonna pay him scale for the reuse of that footage. He wasn't <laughs> allowed to negotiate that. Yeah. And I thought that wasn't fair. And then also the makeup using his life mask without him being paid any licensing fee or agreement. So I was happy to share with him my stories and photos uh, because by that time, it was apparent to me that Universal was not gonna allow me to promote myself because they wanted to keep me somewhat a secret. I was like, this is the highest grossing film of 1985 and now the highest producing sequels it seemed at least for 89 and 90 yeah um how are they going to keep that secret yeah right yeah we're paying attention what are you but uh they uh ended up because of the material crispin had and his attorney had they ended up settling before it went to court i believe mm. or maybe right after it went to court, whatever out of court for three quarters of a million dollars uh which is ironic because while we were shooting I'm, I'm in a body cast to do a special spin for pizza. You know, I was hanging upside down mostly by wires most of the time, but mm -hmm. then at one point they put me in a body cast with a pole going through the set. So when Lorraine pulls out the hydrated pizza in four seconds and says, George, rotate your axis for pizza. You can see this <laughs> in the deleted scene called pizza. Um, I go, okay, four, <laughs> you know, doing my tribute laugh to, to Crispin. Um, uh, I'm, I'm doing the, uh, that, that, uh, body cast thing. And I forgot, I, I, I derailed myself in my thought because I, I was making a point and I started laughing inside. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, be, because because the the studio, you know, uh, was basically keeping me a secret, not letting me uh, promote myself even. Yeah. And, and gigs started uh, disappearing. I was like, wow, this is this is nasty. What's going on here? And uh, oh, I remember now. I was in the body cast, uh, waiting to shoot something the light was being reset or something and Spielberg the only one time Spielberg came over to me he kind of said under his breath so Crispin I see you got your million dollars after all <laughs> I was like well that's what <laughs> <laughs> and because I had told that story to to Crispin uh, his attorney used it in an interview with Variety and Hollywood Reporter um, which I think helped his case a little bit yeah unfortunately since then Bob Gale has denied that that ever happened I was like Bob you weren't even there yeah so you... <laughs> but uh so this this sort of uh butting of heads you know I wish would go away I, it doesn't appear that it would be be nice for both sides Crispin's still arguing and crying and, and Bob Gale's still not taking responsibility for what mm -hmm. they had to do mm -hmm. um so it's um you know unfortunate but i was stuck in the middle and i was happy to be a, a catalyst for for you know kind of gluing those scenes together mm -hmm. and i'm also very grateful for for the fans around the world that have uh taken me sort of out of obscurity and embraced me yeah for oh, that's sure. awesome what was it like were you gonna no, go ahead. what was it like to work with michael j fox yeah. because like for me i mean i'm of the generation where he was kind of a heartthrob you know when I was young so what was it like working with him and how his his personal story impacted you uh he's a, a charming feisty funny wonderful guy mm -hmm. uh, we had incredibly long hours when we were shooting the majority of the part two Mike was finishing up the last season of family ties mm -hmm. so he was working all day during the day and we we'd have him all night wow and then yeah. on the weekends and on weekends we would work almost 24 hours so i remember one week on my time card or time sheets i had a 21 hour a 20 a 19 hour and a 26 hour long day wow now part of it was the makeups took a long time it took four hours to get into any of those makeups age 17 47 or 77 and, you know, Mike and Leah and Tom all had that same old age makeup that they'd have to go to, or Mike would, you know, take three hours to get into Marlene as my granddaughter. Mm -hmm. um, but Mike was a sport, you know, when he had to go into the drag of Marlene, or if he, you know, was bleary eyed, tired, he'd still hang in there. Yeah. Uh, by the end of the first week of shooting, we, we bonded, he had, had me come to his trailer and have a beer and and chat about different things some of the stories are just off the wall incredible <laughs> success stories for him and uh i even recommended that he buy this farm that he showed me a videotape of um that had the barn from the 18th century and the long-haired sheep and i said why do you like this place and he goes well i went up there to look at it and went to the main country store in town and I was, wasn't treated as anyone special. I was just a regular guy and I liked that. I said, mm -hmm. and you should buy it, you should do it. get out there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in 08, we did our first cast reunion. There were probably 
two dozen cast and crew members at this Hollywood show. And Mike came in on the Sunday unannounced. Mm. He just happened to be on one of his first book publicity tours. And he came in un unannounced. And it was the first time as soon as he got there, uh, Mark McClure, who played Dave McFly, Claudia Wells, who played Jennifer Parker, Francis Lee McCain, who played uh, Stella Baines, uh, Chris Lloyd, and uh, Leah Thompson and myself uh, all went out and just hung out for about 20 minutes with Mike because mm -hmm. we hadn't seen him since we'd sh shot the film. And uh, the ravages of Parkinson's had really hit his body. And, you know, at times it, the pain, I think, made him go up on his toes and he had to move. You know, he couldn't, he was, mm -hmm. you could tell he was not comfortable. Mm -hmm. yeah. But he still was feisty. He was still funny. He was, you know, at, at the core, he's this really wonderful human being. Mm -hmm. And it, it was heartbreaking for us. I think the, we all of us had tears because it was so hard to see. Especially how it was ravaging him, but we, you know, spent those quality moments with him. Came back in with 500 plus fans, just like in the lobby of this uh, uh, Burbank Airport Hotel, like Mike, you know. And we all looked at Mike and said, "We're going to lunch. See ya." And left him. And he turned to us like, "Whoa, <laughs> take me with you." Yeah. And he got mobbed. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But it was it was really great to see him again. So in 2015, I ran into the owner of the London Film and Comic Con at a Doctor Who convention, the Galfrey One. And he said, Jeffrey, we love having you at our, our shows um, because this is a big reunion this year, anniversary year, I think the 25th. Uh, how can I get Michael and Tom? And I said, well, I'll, I'll write them both and tell them how well I've been treated. And with Mike, you know, maybe whatever you're paying him match giving it to his charity. Mm, yeah. Before that, Michael had never done a, a Comic-Con. And that was his first one that year. Mm. And then Tom started doing them the next year. So I'm happy that I was a catalyst in, in bringing them in. Yeah, yeah. Whether they know it or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned how hard it was to work on the set. There's a scene that we've kind of talked about a little bit where you're hanging upside down the whole scene. So yes. take us through how all that worked and what was it like filming a scene like upside down? <laughs> well, can I say it was like being upside down? Yeah. <laughs> so how long would you be upside down though for takes? Uh, well, uh, uh, generally the in the McFly home of 2015, uh, if I was needed on set by 8.30, 9 a.m., I would be in the makeup chair by 4 a.m. I'd get made up for, a, let me let me show you something while I'm okay. describing this. Yeah. Uh, I would can you see this? Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do I make it? Okay, here we go. So uh, I'm in the makeup chair by 4 a.m. Here is Nancy Vasta gluing my neck in with Sonny Berman, like great Sonny Berman of the Berman Brothers. Uh -huh. um, the next chair is Leah being made up by Kenny Myers and Michael Mills, who was the foreman on Beetlejuice, among many other great films. We had the really the best wow. makeup artists uh, extant. In um, the studio next door was, of course, other great makeup artists working on Dick Tracy. Oh, wow. Um, uh, 
or is that Marvin Westmore? That's Marvin Westmore, not Kenny Myers, of the West, Westmore family, legends. So for a couple hours, they would glue the pieces on and then uh, give me a break for a half an hour to have a breakfast burrito. And then I'd come <laughs> back and, and uh, get painted and hair applied. Wow. So this is footage that was cut from the making of Back to the Future Part Two documentary. A friend of mine was on the crew. Otherwise, I probably would have never seen this footage because they, Universal, you know, didn't, didn't want it to get out there for, Goodness. you know, what reasons. Wow. That's crazy. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> This, this is your breakfast burrito break. Yes. <laughs> that's amazing. From the side, you look just like Crispin. It's pr That's crazy. They did a great job with that. Wow. Kissing Leah. <laughs> a lot of people jealous of that. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Okay, this is the weirdest question. Is it weird kissing someone with all that stuff on your face? You'll have to ask her. <laughs> from your perspective <laughs> could you feel it like that did it feel weird thing on your face and no not much it was uh, you know it's like wearing a mask you know? yeah I feel okay. sorry for her actually and when, when she slipped me the tongue though it was different. oh that was, got real awkward <laughs> i'm sure no uh, um probably tastes like what, a what was interesting to me um I, it, I think it was uncomfortable for Robert Zemeckis because it, you heard in that footage there, Robert say Leah as her cue to start. Before that, he was saying Crispin. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, at one point I said, I'm not Crispin. Why don't you say George or something? Yeah, <laughs> right. Know? Yeah. Or, or Jeffrey. I don't, like but, my uh, name. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Oh, wow. But like I said, there are so many uh, uh, stories and uh, the fans just love them. At my uh, solo panel in London Film and Comic Con, I showed that footage for the first time in, in Europe and people just went nuts. They yeah. really loved it. And uh, I saw Leah at the uh, Chiller Theater Comic Con where we had, gosh, we have 16 did we have 16 of the cast? Was it that many? We had quite a few of the cast members mm -hmm. and, and Leah was so warm and you know, she's working like mad now directing. And uh, I have some really lovely moments with her from, from that show. But uh, one of my, my favorite moments though was standing before we were doing our group cast photo with uh, James Tolkien, Francis Lee McCain and, and Burton, uh, Burton Gilliam. Uh, you might remember Burton from uh, Blazing Saddles. Mm. Uh, he, you know, he's got that huge grin and he was dressed as a, his character from Blazing Saddles at the show, at the uh -huh. fan con. And he, he sells Marty the, uh, his revolver in part three. 
Hmm. And that's it, how he's in the, the trilogy. Anyway, he comes up to, to James Tolkien and he says, how old are you? I bet I'm older than you. <laughs> and James Tolkien says, no, you're not. No, you're not. <laughs> James Tolkien says, I'm 91. Oh, wow. And Burton, with his big smile, he's got this huge teethy grin. And he says, I'm 96. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just cherish that moment. I'll, I'll send you the picture. It's just lovely. Oh, that's fantastic. That's awesome. And, that, and that's the reward for me is, is being able to rub elbows with these incredible talents, mm-hmm. acting talents and legends, and then meeting the fans. I'm a real people person. And uh, one of the reasons I learned how to greet in 15 languages at, at Universal on the tour, if you greet, say, a, a, a Sikh, you know, who's in their turban, you say to them, they go, oh, how do you know? You know, or, or if I can differentiate a Korean from a, a, a Chinaman and I can go instead of, or ni hao, and they, they immediately, uh, their wall breaks down. Yeah, they you're go, oh. right there, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so they're very happy. And, and because the British Empire, <laughs> you know, at one time had China and had India and so on and so forth, they showed all of Laurel and Hardy's and Charlie Chaplin's films over there. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of expect them to speak in their tongue because they uh, often, you know, not only dubbed their films in those languages, but uh, Hal Roach had Laurel and Hardy do their, their early talkies in Italian, Spanish, French, and German. Mm. So if I, I say, you know, as Stanley say, come on, say, ah, you know, <laughs> Uh, they they're just oh you're my friend you know and they want yeah. to do a photo <laughs> so it, it, it's, it's a fun icebreaker yeah that's really cool why do you think that Back to the Future is such an international cultural phenomenon why why do you think so I don't know yeah no, it's, it's a fun film it's uh, clever extremely well written they mm-hmm. rewrote it within an inch of its death uh, life I mean uh, it almost died you know it. it it went to every studio and was rejected by every studio. You know, Disney, no, we're not going to have the kid sleeping with his mom, you know, or flirting yeah. with his... Um, it's, first of all, time travel, which everyone wants to do, and everyone wants to go back and see their, their, their parents in high school, and, and there's this timeless relationship between Doc and Marty that's not sexual. You know, an older man and a, a younger man it's in today's day and age it's kind of you know a given that there's going to be innuendo and stuff and there's none of that there it's mm-hmm. like laurel and hardy mm-hmm. you know they laurel hardy could sleep in the same bed and there was never anything sexual about it, mm, it yeah. was it was a relationship of deep friendship mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and that's what it celebrates it's deep yeah. friendship and it carries through all three films and mm-hmm. and the you know it's a romp it's uh, mm-hmm. a ride um, I got some trivia for you guys. Oh, God. Uh-oh. It's going to be all okay, you. Okay, I'm going to try. <laughs> How does Marty, in the original script, get okay. from 1955 back to 18, uh, to 1985? In the original script? I so, it's, so. Not, it's not what we saw on the screen, then. No, I don't know. I have I'm, no I idea. There's a clue uh, on Marquee on the theater, the movie theater at the end of the block in Hill Valley in 1955. 
you remember the name of the movie that was playing? I can't remember. Mm. All right. Uh, uh, it was Mickey Rooney in a film. Does that help that? Mickey Rooney. In so the atomic that, cave. Is it a tornado then? No, it's not a tornado. Um, okay, so they shot with Eric Stoltz as Marty for seven weeks or so. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Um, what they did was they tried to get Michael J. Fox early on. They went to the producers, didn't even tell Mike Fox, and went to the producers of Family Ties, can we have him? And they said, no, <laughs> we won't let him out because Meredith Baxter Burney is going to have a baby. We may need him. We need all the rest of the cast to cover for her or whatever. So uh, I believe Sid Scheinberg, head of production at, at Universal, said, uh, "Try. I want you to use this kid who is a big hit from Mask, um, Eric Stoltz. So they get Eric Stoltz kind of forced on them. As we know, Eric, very uh, method into being yeah. already on screen and uh, on camera and while even offset, he would, he would call Claudia at, at home and ask, ask for Jennifer, who's Claudia's sister's name, but he was asking really for Claudia because she was playing Jennifer. Anyway, things like this. Um, and, and Tom Wilson's even said, you know, he asked me to, call him Marty all the time. So uh, after seven weeks, Eric was let go because they learned that Mike Fox was now available because Meredith had her baby. And Scheinberg, I believe, came back to them and said, well, if you want your boy, you need to cut a million dollars off your script, off your budget. So they canceled an entire location setup, which was out in the desert where Marty was going to drive the DeLorean 88 miles an hour underneath an atom bomb as it's being dropped. Oh, gosh. Wow. <laughs> okay. Oh, my goodness. That's a little different. <laughs> Learn something new. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. So what was on the marquee? The Atomic Kid, Mickey Rooney and the oh, Atomic, Atomic Kid. Kid. Okay. <laughs> okay. Wow. So that was Who a nod knew? to the cutscene. Yeah. That's so cool. A lot, a lot of people don't know that uh, Chris Lloyd uh, turned this the roll down he actually threw the the script in the in the garbage ah. threw it in the trash and uh, because he was done with hollywood he had done taxi for how many ever five years or more um wanted to do legitimate theater he's a wonderful circle a theater stage performer and uh he was set to do a show with colleen dewhurst and apparently uh miss dewhurst got sick and the show got postponed a month and it got postponed another month. And it was like, oh my God, what are we going to do? And uh, <laughs> his, uh, I think it was his girlfriend at the time or his wife, uh, who had, he had said no stone unturned, had taken the script out of the garbage and put it in front of her and said, how about this? Uh, What's this? In the meantime, <laughs> they were looking at Jeff Goldblum and Dudley Moore and Bill Cosby and all sorts of other options. John Lithgow. I remember John had said he wanted to take some time off to be with the kids from film because I had tried to get him on another project that I was helping cast. Um, anyway, just a lot of fun stories. Uh, crazy to think, it's crazy to think how these movies developed and how they changed and then, but it's only, what we see is all we remember. We don't realize all these things happened. Mm -mm. And we don't know, I mean, we do now, but we didn't know at the time that there was all this stuff going on with Crispin and, because mm -hmm. you assume a movie, everybody's happy and, you know, everybody, but obviously <laughs> the sets aren't always the mm -hmm. family place you think they're going to be. There's some business going on there too, so. Mm -hmm. Oh boy, I, I had to uh, 
keep Kerry Snodgrass from from quitting Pale Rider a couple times. Really, <laughs> Michael Moriarty quit the film for a few days. Oh my gosh! But yeah, uh, you remember when Hull Barrett is riding the buckboard? You go into town, ain't that kind of dumb? And he goes yeah. to town, and uh, is it Char Char Charles Charles Hallahan? Uh, Marvin McIntyre, the, those roughs in town, the first time he goes, you yeah. know, they have a fight and then Clint, you know, takes his nice piece of hickory there. To, to <laughs> yeah. um, they were messing around during a choreographing the fight and and broke three of Michael's fingers. Oh my God. On, on this hand, I think. Mm -hmm. He broke these three fingers and he quit, he quit the show. Because Michael, um, is a musician composer and oh, he yeah. had been commissioned to write a symphony oh. and uh, he was so upset over the broken fingers he left it took Clint a while but he figured out he got Mike a uh, uh, Melo Melotron Melotron Mel some sort of keyboard that you could blow through in his dressing room and still compose on the keyboard oh my gosh and uh, it, next time you watch Pale Rider watch the scene where Paul Barrett comes back from town. Yeah. Michael doesn't hide the cast. When he went into town, he didn't have a cast. Oh, oh wow. wow. <laughs> okay, I've kind of rewatched all this. Yeah, now. you do. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so I heard that Zemeckis said, as long as he's alive, there'll be no sequels, there'll be no reboots, which to me is refreshing because it keeps alive what was done, the artistry that was done then. And so how do you feel about him saying, that's a bold statement in... In, in a media world where everything is a redo, it seems like, yeah. Yeah, I, I, had, to, I had it out with Tim Russ, you know, from Star Trek uh, fame. Tim, when, when I mentioned that, I quoted Bob Z and Bob G. Um, they mm -hmm. say, as long as they're alive, they, there'll be no, no uh, sequel. And, and Tim Russ, who was a, a, the other celebrity at this event I was at, he said, no. Universal thinks they can make enough money. They'll do it. They don't, those guys. I was like, mm, I, I don't know, Tim. We haven't seen their contract, their agreement. It may be that they have a final save, especially if the studio wants their participation, which would be key. Oh, and yeah. was, ah, if they see enough money, they'll, they'll do it. I was like, okay, <laughs> um, which may be the case. Although uh, when I was in London just three weeks ago, I did see the Back to the Future musical which oh, yeah. even though it is based on the first story, the first film, there's a lot of new stuff in it mm. that in a way it is kind of a Back to the Future part four. At least it's breathed new life mm. into the franchise and it's wonderful fun, just oh, cool. terrific fun. And I'm not surprised that it's going to Broadway. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. Yeah. Jeffrey, we have enjoyed so much spending time with you. I feel like I want to just like sit Indian style at your feet and just like take all the stories in. All right. Also, when you're writing all your words, I feel like you should also like record some bedtime stories or something. Like, I just want to like listen to you talk. So if you could work that out. <laughs> sure. You know, you've got my number now. You've got yeah. the way of reaching me. If you need a bedtime story, just give yeah. me a call. Yeah. Okay. Because you're... It's, uh, it's just relaxing. It is. So like, relaxing. Yeah, like, I know. I yeah. just I feel like just all refreshed and relaxed. Also, you have very cool hair. I'm a hairdresser by trade. So, you know, I'm digging it. Well, there, there's a reason for that. In fact, I was just earlier today trying to figure out how I can still do Stan Laurel, you know, uh -huh. like this. My, yeah. my wife 
actually trimmed it up here so I can still do the fright wig. the top. Yeah, have everything tight and back because mm -hmm. I don't want to cut. I haven't had long hair, first of all, since I was 20, <laughs> 43 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I also uh, have, I'm living now in a place where I can probably get some Mark Twain gigs. I, I've been playing Mark Twain. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I play Twain in uh, a PBS movie called uh, Dreamland, Mark Twain in Jerusalem, mm -hmm. based on his trip in 1867. And, and I've played Twain at living history immersive theater pieces. And uh, I also, you know, have just been asked to play Albert Einstein on a gig. Yeah. Einstein had wild hair too. Oh, so yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> trying to make it work. It's working for you. It <laughs> is working right. for you. <laughs> is it, I don't think I'm, am I longer than yours? you're about the same yeah. um, for einstein you're going to need to throw some layers in there so you can get it nice and poofy out here yes mm -hmm. and i also from time to time believe it or not play doc brown oh yeah okay well I, I, there's a short film out there uh in which i play doc brown in and i've done some birthday parties with my friends who have doc time machine delorean yeah oh because you can do balloon animals yes <laughs> <laughs> Doc Brown doing a balloon animal just that's gold. Go wild. That's ex existential that right there. That is a party. Yeah. Oh, Doc Brown would just pop them. Um, <laughs> but I, I should plug, you know, if if you have a Back to the Future fan that is has a special event coming up and you want me to come and say something, I, I'm on Cameo. Yeah. And right. uh, and I do charity events all the time, so reach oh, me through okay. JeffreyWeisman.com or if yeah. you want an autograph picture. JeffreyWeisman.com. You can reach me through that. Fantastic. Okay, That's awesome. great information. Thank you so much. We just thank you so much. Again, I don't want to hang up because I want you to tell me more stories, <laughs> but you know, it's probably been a minute since we started this. I don't yeah. know how long we've been talking, but we appreciate you taking the time. We wish you the best of luck. You've got so much ahead of you, it sounds like, and keep growing. Wait, wait a minute. I have to clarify you're only two of a party of five. Where were the other three? Right. Oh, okay. So we have three boys. They are, uh, 24 uh 21 and 19 yeah and then some time ago we let a, a young girl who just needed a place to live come live with us so our boys are like six three six four right they're very tall and we're tall and uh the girl that came to live with us while she's, she's older than all of our kids she's actually like five two maybe so we called her the half because she's kind of like half oh, ours also like short She's also the only girl. It just worked. It's so party, five, party, five and a half. Five and a half. It's a great conversation starter. Yeah. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, thank you uh, so much, Hardys. And uh, I guess I'll see you in the future. Yeah, okay. that's right. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Thank you, Jeffrey. Take care. Next time I want to see the other three and a half. There you go. There you go. We'll work it out. We'll get them all here. <laughs> Take care. Thank right, you. Bye-bye. Okay, wasn't that fascinating? It really was. Okay, what was the thing that you learned that you were so in, that like you didn't know before it? How? Well, like with Pale Rider, which is one of my favorite movies, yeah. I didn't know like Michael Moriarty quit, like one of the main characters. Yeah. It was just, it was funny to hear, like we talked with him. It's like you think these sets are these happy, everybody's a family, we're making this movie together, when a lot mm -hmm. of times it's just a business. <laughs> yeah. And like there's, and we talked about offline about how the friction of that helps you be creative. But yeah. Yeah. So I think that's true. I think that's totally yeah. so true. So what surprised you the most? Um, gosh, I don't, 
he was so multifaceted that I don't know that I could say that like one thing surprised me as far as like this particular movie or show that he was in he was everywhere yeah he's like the Forrest Gump of his time because you know doing the whole I think what I'm going to rephrase. I think that actually what I found so fascinating was his Laurel and Hardy stuff. Like his, yeah, the universal, the, yeah, the face-to-face interaction. I just think it takes a different type of person to be able to do that. I think there's a, there's a different vulnerability yeah. quick on the fly, on the fly. You see what I did? See on the McFly, on the McFly, <laughs> quick on the McFly. I think you have to be, that gentle you have, you have to be, a, there's a little something more to, maybe not more, just different yeah. to that than you know, cut and we move on to the next well, and, scene or. Yeah. I think beyond acting, like being a performer, but also like when we talked about with him, mm-hmm. just knowing the different languages, you're building community at the same time. Yeah. So it goes beyond just acting and performing scene. Mm-hmm. You're creating this, you're creating this experience for everybody around you. And mm-hmm. I think there's some hospitality and stuff there that yeah. may be just acting. If you just want to say just acting yeah. doesn't have. Right. So I that agree. was fascinating to learn yeah. how he did that. Yeah. yeah. I know. And I loved how he would slip into characters. Yeah. Yeah. That was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> and you just kind of sit back and just watch him work and giggle. I mean, it yeah. was like we were getting this little side view. He was enjoying cool. it. Yeah. Like, it was, it so was cool. Yeah, he's a good guy. I like so him. we hope you guys enjoyed this interview with Jeffrey Wiseman. Hey, go check out his website. You want an autograph picture? You want him to pop in at your birthday party? I do. That's right. Your birthday's April in April. 6th, April 6th, baby. <laughs> We're coming for you. April That's 6th, right. Jeffrey. <laughs> so I thought it was so great. I hope you guys enjoyed it too. Party, party, five and a half. Over and out. We'll see you next time.